Welcome to this magazine debrief this week. I'm joined by Dan Worth, international editor at TES. Hi, Dan. Hi there. And Goynia Hallahan. Goynia, did I say your name right? No, I didn't, did I? No, you didn't. Please tell the listeners how to say your name. So I'm Goynia Hallahan. And your job title. Let's, let's let you introduce yourself. And I'm the recruitment editor and senior content writer at TES. There we go. Well, the aim of this now weekly podcast uh, is a magazine debrief. So the, the, the plan, if you like, is to uh, look at one of the features in the magazine, discuss the context of it, give our own views around it. So this week is a feature by Jess Powell looking at Rosenshine's principles of instruction. And she does a, using an Ofsted phrase, deep dive into the principles of instruction and tries to find out how they were originated, why they've just gained huge traction uh, in the teaching profession, and uh, whether, I guess, they're, they're worth the hype. Um, my own view on, on Rosenshine is that he is probably a feature of every third pitch we get into the features desk at the moment, and has been for probably the last 18 months. And, you know, everyone wants to talk about it, and there it you know whatever i think about it is obviously touched a nerve with teachers and and they believe it to be of some use to them um let's start with dan um does it come up in a lot of pitches on the international circuit is this something the international schools are talking about as well is this is this a common feature of your daily editing life it's not something i'm seeing as much as on the uk and having spent time on the sort of more uk focused side of um the sort of emails we receive yeah don't see it as much internationally now maybe that's just just coincidence maybe there's nothing to that maybe it's because it hasn't sort of had the same impact just in the overseas you know international teaching arena not quite sure but it's interesting to see that difference yeah i think so and how about how about you Gronia? so i remember when i first heard about rosenshine it was back when i was still teaching and um, I went along to the CPD session and the person running it just literally got the, the PDF out and had had copies for everybody and those who couldn't just got it up on their phone and he just went through it. And um, teachers do, they love, they love Rose and Shine and it's um, that in the room there was a real like sense of, yeah, this is really great, this is really great. But it's... Um, it's interesting in how simple it is and how somebody who wasn't a teacher perhaps might read it and just be like, is that it? Mm -hmm. But I think the reactions that people have to it are because of what they've come from. It's the context. It's what they've gone through for teacher training. It's what they're told to do in their club by their like, senior leadership team to teach. And what Rosenshine says to do is just teach really, isn't it? Yeah. And I guess, I mean, Mark Enser, who's one of our columnists says in the piece that it was almost a, and uh, he was given the authority to teach how he always thought he should be teaching or that felt like it was an effective way of teaching but it has to be said that not everyone views Rosenshine that way and you know Jess does you know pinpoint some people who have an issue with Rosenstein from a from a, a research point of view and uh, an ideological point of view and I guess the research side of it is 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 the harder one to interrogate because teachers are very um, time poor in that respect. But the ideological side is interesting. I mean, as an ex-teacher, do you do you see them as a particularly ideological set of principles? I don't think that it's the ideology behind it that makes them 
so like that's that's not really what it is about rose and shine that appeals to people i think it's the fact that it doesn't have things on there that you know don't actually make your lessons better so i've worked in a school where you had a list of things you had to do every lesson and it included stuff like you must refer to the school motto at least once a lesson and you had to um use one of the phrases from the school motto and apply it to what you were teaching in that lesson every single lesson and it's all the kind of silly long the long things you had to do you had to come up with your three lesson objectives and then the objectives had to have aims but the aims couldn't be an objective and it's that kind of tangly complicated unnecessary stuff that isn't in rose and shine and i think that's why people like it yeah i, I could see that actually i mean it's an, it's an interesting exercise to try and distill principles of a profession. I mean, I was trying to think, I mean, could, could we do it for journalism? I mean, what do you think, Dan? I mean, if I said to you, what are the 10 principles of journalism? Do you think we would agree? Do you think how much crossover do you think there would be? Yeah, you put me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you could come up with 10, but it certainly wouldn't be exhaustive. And I think you'd immediately invite disagreement. Um, but I think in some ways though you could probably come up with 10 that would would be quite safe and and almost simplistic you know produce produce well-written copy and you know well obviously and i think that's what i found interesting as a sort of as a non-teacher but someone who has done some lecturing in my time uh, on a journalism degree i actually did look at rose and shine because i'd heard so much about it when i went to first do these lectures because you know i was i was slightly nervous about standing up and, and effectively teaching um, and when I came to look at them, I was actually, as, as Jess outlines in the feature in the magazine, I was somewhat sort of underwhelmed. I thought, well, some of this just sounds really sensible. And I think one of them says, um, ask questions and check student understanding. And I just thought, well, yeah, I mean, I'm <laughs> going to ask some questions because I want to make sure I get some engagement and so forth. But when I read that the feature does such a good job of explaining that, like, the way that they've become interpreted in the world of teaching sounds like it's become very simplistic not necessarily in a bad way, but it just has from the starting point of, you know, as Jess sort of outlines really well in this sort of almost investigative way of like, why did he produce these 10 points? You know, what was his, who, who asked him to do it? Where were they published and by whom and why? And that's actually something you don't really think about, but it leads you to a very interesting place. Um, and so if I was to do that, the journalism side of things, I think actually, yeah, the simple guiding principles that you can always turn to is like, right, it's got to be good. So yeah, it sounds simple, but actually it's a really useful way of saying, right, that's my goal. That's what I'm going to achieve. I think that's the, the key with the, the principles is that, you know, as you said, if it was for journalism, you know, well-written work and you think, well, yeah, of course we'll do well-written work, but actually, what does that mean really? And it's similar with Rosenshine where it says, you know, you, there's a point about feedback. You say, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, how do we get into that? And I think uh, as you'll probably know better than, than us to that that's where these things can mutate in schools where a where a school leader will have or a head of teaching and learning will have a view on the interpretation and that interpretation will become the principle rather than necessarily the overview it's that in, and in the feature it talks about the use of instruction and like how for some people instruction means direct instruction but for others that just means teaching mm. so you it gets filtered through whoever's holds the holds the strings doesn't it like whoever's yeah. actually in charge you just hear their version it's so bland and so open that you can read into it whatever you want somebody who was very progressive in their teaching could take rose and shine and use it as a, an excuse to do what they wanted to do if you see what I mean. yeah and it's that it's that mutations you know that happens with a lot of research and 
I think the point you made, Dan, there about how how Rosenshine came to being is a really important one Jess uncovers, is that, you know, this wasn't Barrett Rosenshine thinking, mm, I wonder I wonder what the principles of teaching would be and happening upon 10. This was this was a uh, international education body going, we want really simple, practical, instructional information for teachers on, I think there was you know, over 20 different topics. And we want some standardization across that. And so we're going to ask everyone who writes one of these guides to do 10, 10 principles, 10 principles of X, Y, or Z. And, you know, from the outside, if you're not in journalism, that, that may, well, that's fine. You know, that, that seems like a, you know, distill it down, make it simple. But actually there's, there's a lot of mutations that can happen along the way there by, you know, for example, Rosenshine, as Jess points out, wanted 17. His, uh, his natural, um, his natural inclination was, oh, I reckon I've got about 17 principles here. Do you know, how many would you think of, Gronia? Like, if, if I put you on the spot for teaching, where would you think you'd end up? Oh, it's, it's impossible. And, it, and it's, um, I can see he's a victim of editing. Like, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if I had to do this, I think I would have argued what for primary and secondary and epic, all teaching. It's, it's a really difficult task. I don't think that, if I if I was asked to come up with my my principles, they wouldn't be that different to Rose and Shines, but I I would need more than ten. It's such a it's such a journalistic thing, though, isn't it? Or, and, and like even say academic journal journals are not immune to it, as to put things in nice little numbers. You know, five, ten. Humans like round numbers. You know, we celebrate birthdays that are round numbers more than than others, just because. And so, like I say, if you get a number of the seventeen, it sort of feels like oh, it just it's a bit messy, isn't it? So you just bring it down to ten, and it's very much the the form is fitting the content is fitting the form then then the, then the, the content having its free reign to do what it needs to which is something that you know again in journalism you grapple with a lot it's like yeah it's great but it's too long so we need to distill it down and make it fit and it's that really good tension between having free reign but having to conform to a you know a, a box yeah i think that's the the point i mean in journalism we do do this a lot where we have our audience in mind they're a time sensitive audience and you know how can we get this information over the quickest way possible? And if you have something like a listicle, which is, you know, a list of five, 10, seven numbers that, that, that people feel that are accessible. One, it, it, if you see that in a headline, you're like, well, okay, I can manage that, you know, mm -hmm. 10 little things I can, I can, I can access that. And so you get them reading, but also it cut, it allows you as a, as an editor to cut out a lot of the noise. It allows you really to distill the message into, you know, okay, we'll put a short intro on it and then, but it's essentially bullet pointing. You're listing your things rather than having to explain, you know, using connective language between all the paragraphs, constructing an argument. It takes all that hassle away. And so you get this immediacy. But I mean, as editors at TES, we're very aware that in doing that, we are simplifying the message. And there's an assumption there on our part that people aren't going to say, well, that's it, you know these 10 things, that must be all we need to think about. We, we hope that it gets interpreted more broadly and in the wider context than that. And I think that's possibly the problem that's happened to Rosenshine is that people perhaps have unwittingly seen, chosen to see it as the, you know, the completed product. Um, and I think, I think you're spot on. Yeah. And I think the, one of the problems is that, as an editor, you don't expect anything you do to become, I mean, we're very proud of our work, of course, and we do want it to be seen in context. We don't expect it to be pulled out in a whole industry grown up around it. And 
I don't know what you think around this, Gwani. Is this common in teaching where something that is quite incidental, you know, this isn't meant to be, you know, Moses on the hill with the Ten Commandments. You know, this is this is a a contribution to a debate, but we seem to have a situation now where there's a there's there's a lot of money in this and there's a lot of people making a lot of money out of Rose and Shine. Do you, want, do, you th- do you ever wonder if that's how like brain gym started? Like it's just so physical and someone just took it away. <laughs> Five ways to get your kids active during lesson time becomes brain gym. I don't know if it even existed back then, but <laughs> from the outside, it's quite an unsettling thing to watch is that you have this, suddenly this industry around a guy that wrote some stuff 10 years ago and can't defend it, can't control that industry. Um, I don't know your thoughts on that one. I think that if you wanted to understand what, what Rosenstein was saying, you can read the original PDF. There's not really much more that people can extrapolate upon that. Each of the individual points is worthy of its own research and time and um, consideration. By blocking them together like we have, does anything extra come out of it, really? Mm. Like each of those different points in, in his principles are really important and need careful looking at and consideration and development in your teaching practice they don't need to be in a nice neat 10 sequence do they i i agree i was trying to think of a, an equivalent in my career as a journalist where i've written something and it, it its influence has possibly outweighed um it it's it's its intended influence. Unfortunately, that's never happened to me. Um, I've, I've never written something that's become that influential. I don't know about you, Dan. I mean, Dan's worked in across several sectors. I mean, have you ever written something and you thought, Christ, this is having a bit more of a bit more of a leading impact on people's behavior than perhaps I intended it to? Not, not on people's behavior. I'd, I'd like to think that what I've written would change people's behavior, but I don't think I can make such a grand claim. But um, yeah, I know what you mean when you write something in it it has more of an impact or it goes further than you thought. Like I've certainly written articles that have been cited by other publications in a way that you thought, oh, I didn't expect that story to gain so mm. much traction or I didn't realise that was quite such a big story at the time, which is always nice. Um, but I certainly think that's what I feel has happened and, and the feature does a really good job in the magazine. It's, it's, I think if any teacher thinks they know the Rosenshine story or what it is and they think, yeah, I know all this, I wouldn't want to need to read that. I definitely, as, as I, although I am a non-teacher, I do think it's a really good like investigative type of journalism, as it were, into a subject that once you, when I read it, I felt so much more informed about it. And I realized, and I think, Gronje, you touched on this, is that the point of it is, is, is that it's, like I say, it's grown beyond the control of what was probably just trying to come up with something as a sort of, yeah, these are 10 good things to be a good teacher. Do these well, and you're on the right track, and you can grow from there. And it's become like the other way around, where it's like, this is, the, this is what you need to aspire to. Whereas I look at it as much like, this is where you start from. Do these 10 good, simple things, and you will have the best chance possible to become a great teacher. It's not once you've done, you can only be a great teacher once you can do these 10 things. Yeah, I think that's, that's the key point. So, um, I mean, you can make your own decisions on the feature. It's, it's out today if, if this podcast has gone out according to plan. Um, and it will be available for the next week. You can um, read it online. You can use your school's subscription. Um, so ask whoever holds the subscription at your school for the login and you can go online and read the feature. You can go and buy it. You can grab the copy that hopefully in the staff room, as long as you're socially distanced, going around collecting that and wiping it down properly when you're, when you're doing that. Um, but um, have a look. There's some loads more great stuff in there. There's um, a look at whether a school could be too clean. There's a, there's a guide to whether year one 
uh, making year one more EYFS based, which a lot of schools are doing this year, whether, what the danger points are on that. And that's, that's fascinating because I know a lot of year one settings are creating more of an EYFS environment. And there are some really good pointers in there about the dangers of that. And um, yeah, there's loads more besides. So please have a read and um, we'll be back next week with another debrief, hopefully. <laughs>